a trip south to experience Lala, Los Angeles, and Latin American artists as part of a region-wide endeavor sponsored by the Getty Foundation. Coming right up. Hello, I am Stephen DeLuke, and you have tuned into Ears on Art, a segment of Issues and Ideas produced at the studios of listener-supported KCBX Public Radio, serving Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, and Monterey counties on the California Central Coast. This week and next, our guests are Jack Rutberg, proprietor of Jack Rutberg Fine Arts Gallery, and Ariel Zuniga, son of famed Mexican artist Francisco Zuniga. Jack is currently hosting an exhibit of the Senior Zuniga's sculptures and drawings, as well as the works of Rico Lebron, which he produced while traveling in Mexico. Francisco Zuniga was born in Costa Rica, but moved to Mexico in 1936, where he resided until his death in 1998. Zuniga's works are part of private and museum collections throughout the world. In Southern California, his works can be seen at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, UCLA Sculpture Gardens, at the University of Southern California, at the Santa Barbara Museum of Art, and the San Diego Museum of Art. Rigo Lebrun was born in Italy and came to the U.S. in 1924, settling first in New York, where he became an illustrator for the likes of Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. Lebrun moved to L.A. in 1938, where he taught at Chouinard Art Institute and the Jepson Art Institute. LeBron's works have been exhibited throughout the world. This exhibit focuses on those works produced while LeBron lived in San Miguel de Allende. Co-host Krista Hewitt traveled to Los Angeles for the interview while I stayed home to deal with an illness. Thank you, Krista. And now, the interview. I'm here today at the Jack Rutberg Gallery in Los Angeles on La Brea, and Jack, the owner, is here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and welcome to L.A. Of course. And would you give a brief overview? You actually have two artists on exhibit here. We're focusing more on one of them, but please tell us about both. Indeed, and it's an interesting pairing. Uh, we're here to talk primarily about the works of Francisco Zuniga, who is the major sculptor of Latin America of uh, the 20th century. Uh, but I would contend one of the major sculptors of the 20th century across the board, uh, because uh, Zuniga has so transcended even his uh, indigenous origins and subject matter. In tandem with this Zuniga exhibition is another exhibition of the works of Rico Lebrun. Rico Lebrun was an artist primarily based in Los Angeles, and the reason we are presenting the two artists is that this is part of a big endeavor that the Getty has uh, taken on called Pacific Standard Time LALA, LALA standing for Los Angeles Latin America. While other venues, including the nearly 80 institutions, have been keying on inviting Latin American artists, they have skirted in many respects the history of Los Angeles as it is hugely connected to Mexico. Francisco Zuniga 
has huge connections in Los Angeles by virtue of his influence and admiration and collecting and representations in museums. And Rico Lebrun has strong connections to Mexico by having been in his lifetime among and perhaps the most widely reproduced, talked about, uh, collected artist in America. But the critical moment was when he went to Mexico to, in a sense, break free from the influences in his early years. And Mexico was the catalyst for an entire change in his direction. So we have two exhibitions that, in many respects, fulfill the mission of the Getty, and I think we have done it better than they. Why not? (laughs) Would you introduce our other guest? Yes, I'm so pleased to be able to say that we're in the presence of a good friend, uh, Ariel Zuniga, who is the son of Francisco Zuniga, but much more than merely the son, this is, uh, which would be enough in a sense, but Ariel is distinguished in his own right in so many ways as a, as a writer uh, on both art and film, but primarily we are here to talk about his expertise as the cataloger, documenter, biographer of his father's works, which I happen to know is not merely a mission but a labor of love, as he is truly a great collector of his own father's works and loves them very, very much. Welcome, Ariel. <laughs> well, thank you. And hearing those words, I just like get too, too short in terms of what I'm going to say or what, what could I do to, to complete this. But let me, let me start immediately with, with something that for me it's, it's very important. Besides the fact that I enjoy a lot coming here to all the openings from Jack because they are always very enjoyable. He, he loves to prepare the, the way he exhibits the art and uh, he will never exhibit something he doesn't really love. He could only like it, that's not enough. He needs to love the art he exhibits and that's very important. And this time... He mentioned sometime last year that he was doing this uh, thing uh, related to Lala and this uh, comparative thing between a Mexican and an American artist and things like that. But he, he told me maybe in February, sometime around end January, I'm going to do a show of your father with someone else. Uh, what do you think? I say, well, it's, it's your choice, it's your gallery, you do however you feel. But uh, he could not have chosen better because with Rico Lebrun being so different, at the same time, they are so the same. And that's something which is very rare. Yes. You know, when you read the the critics uh, writing about Rico Lebrun, for example, they always talk about the influence he had from Picasso. But... who didn't? <laughs> you know, Picasso was such a monster, such a gorgeous beast, that he influenced everybody. I would even say himself. <laughs> you know, so the the, the point is that uh, with Rico Lebrun there is something that is so personal that even in the period he was, as we could say, under the influence of Picasso. He was never really, you know, uh, 
destroyed by Picasso. He was never imposed by Picasso. He was, never, he was always very personal. And then he had a way of understanding drawing as something that, for me, is probably the most intense idea of drawing. Is as you know, uh, line do not exist in nature. Line is a convention, and it's a convention that has been very useful for artists, in particular for those who draw, and even more particularly for those who draw human figure, which is even more specifical. And in this case, uh, one of the very few artists in the 20th century who mentions the drawing as a language itself, independently of what is representing. It can be geometry, it can be whatever you want, you know, an architectural plan or, uh, you know, uh, a wheel, or right. whatever you want. But it can also be a human figure. And so besides the subject of the drawing, the line itself is language in it. So when you are seeing a, a nude by Zuniga or by Lebrun, besides that nude or besides that woman or that man, you have something else that has to do with the interior of the person, mm -hmm. but also of the artist. Because in fact, art is mainly a reflection of the person. It's not something you're representing outside of yourself, but something that you are in yourself. Right. So when you see, uh, when you see a Zuniga, besides the point that's my father, that's completely <laughs> an accident, but the, besides that, uh, when you look at any of those Zunigas here or any of those Lebruns that you can see here, you are under the impression that you are talking to the person. You're talking to Zuniga, you're talking to Lebrun. And that's something absolutely wonderful. I just try to imagine what could happen if the two guys <laughs> had met, you know? Because that could at the same time be something very strong, very, you know, friendly, intense, but that could be exactly the opposite too. They were so much alike. And then when you see the works, one by one, you can just not imagine how close they were mm -hmm. inside as human beings. And that, in a moment like this, in the history of the world, that's something we all need. We need these events happening, because then you see something human and something human separate, different from different languages, but talking the same language, talking human. Absolutely. I'm sorry to repeat. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a repeating the same idea, but uh, I love this word human because it's so rare. <laughs> it is at that. Yeah. I was wondering, because you have just arrived here, you flew up from Mexico this morning, correct? Yes, yes. I don't want this to sound trite, but what is it like to walk in this room full of your father's work? <laughs> well, it's... Well, it's very emotional. It's very emotional. So uh, it was very good that I just arrived in time so that we could immediately get into the mic. And so I have not yet done my tour of the place because then the emotions control. 
Now, after that, I have expressed some words, whatever they are meaningful or not, whatever they really express what I believe. Uh, when I go out and look at the works, I am sure I will be a little more controlled. <laughs> that will be easier and helpful. Uh, perhaps. <laughs> yes, yes. If you have just joined us, you are listening to Ears on Art, produced at the studios of KCBX Public Radio in San Luis Obispo, California. Today's guest is Ariel Zunica, son of famed Mexican artist Francisco Zunica. There is currently an exhibit of the senior Zunica's works at the Jack Rutberg Gallery on North La Brea in Los Angeles. Before we get into all of your efforts and research and uh, accomplishments in terms of documenting all of this work, what was it like growing up in that household? Your father was very prolific, so at least by the look of things, so he must have been at it all the time. <laughs> Well, we didn't really notice that, you know. <laughs> the guy was working. Um, I could tell you that, well, we are three. I am the older brother. Then I have a brother, which is three years younger. And then my sister, which is eight years younger. But before she was born, when we were the two, the two brothers that were very close and going to school every day together and, you know, in different degrees, but we were doing all... Uh, we were kind of very anarchic or something, you know, very chaotic maybe as kids because n nobody really paid much attention to the kids, you know. We got together and uh, if you tried to talk about something as a kid in, on the table, uh, my father stand and, and, and leave. <laughs> the only way we could hold him in the table was asking something about art, or like, like, excuse me, the expression, but like pl playing dumb and like saying all of a sudden, but I have heard this name, Leonardo. What, what is that? What does it mean, you know? And at that time, it was not comics with Leonardo name like today, but at that time, Leonardo was only Leonardo, was only one. And then he could stay there for more coffee and then explain us who Leonardo was. <laughs> and, well, that was a kind of a trick we had to, to hold him there. But besides that, we were always divided uh, three days a week, my brother and three days me, to go and do the homework when we were very young kids from, I don't know, six to maybe 12. When we were going to do our homeworks, we were either with my mother, either with my father. And then my mother was sewing, she was doing, uh, she was doing costumes for the movies in Mexico, so it was always fun to be there, you know. My job was to, to pick up needles and things <laughs> on, the, on the floor. But if we went with my father, we could do whatever we wanted. We could even sleep if we wanted. He didn't care if we were doing homework or not. He just wanted to avoid having any problems with his wife that was going to say, if they stay together, they are not doing homework, and then we need to control them and we need to discipline them. So if I was with my father, it was not a problem. The only thing I could not do was to make any noise. So I could stay and watch what he was doing. Of course, when I was eight or nine, looking at a man drawing all the time was just kind of boring, you know. And uh, I was never really feeling the desire of draw myself. My brother had more that tendency. 
But the funny thing, and that's the reason I mentioned this, is that when I was alone, then I had the same impulse to draw. It's funny, I, I was never a good drawer. I never did a good drawing. I know people who say that I have done good drawings, but I, I never <laughs> consider myself a drawer. But what was funny about that is that I felt the, the need to do it when I was alone, not when I was with them. And when I was with them, I was not uh, paying attention. Now, working for the catalog, I have discovered that I was paying a lot of attention, that I have learned a lot of what he was doing. But I was not under the impression I was paying attention, you know? And that's something very Absorbing by almost osmosis. It's just yeah, there. It's, it's something very, very, very strange. But, uh, but it's, I still see a drawing of my father and... Uh, you see, I'm going to go to, to an appointment on Sunday with a lady somewhere around here, Westwood or Brentwood, or, because she insisted she wanted me to see a drawing that I have received pictures. I know the drawing is good. I could have told her, look, madame, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm going to be very busy. But I'm very happy. I'm going to go there to her house and see how the drawing looks, how it is. Not in terms of subject, not in terms of color, but in terms of texture, mm -hmm. in terms of the expression of the line, what his line meant. He never explained those things, but fortunately, Rico Lebrun did. Ah. So when you read the text Rico Lebrun published with his drawings, you understand. Then I was reading that because I had... I have read this book a long time ago, but now I knew we were going to have a conversation in public here. So I just like say, well, I have to read that again. So when I was reading that, I just like said, but he's, he's talking about exactly the same thing as my father did. They are talking about exactly the same thing. Now, how they, how they project that in terms of form, that's more a personal thing that, you know, doesn't really change much. Right. But then all this to say that I know I'm going to have a very strong emotion because the emotions are reflecting when you see something completely new exactly in the same way that when you see something you know. You know, the idea is, oh, I have seen this, I know this, or this I don't know, then I'm, I'm curious. Curiosity is not because you know or you don't. Either you're curious or you're not. Mm -hmm. Either you're emotional or you're not. And this is... Uh, <laughs> I just <laughs> try not to turn my eyes around, but it's, it's very emotional. You know, I have a, I have a little drawing there in the back and in, in the wall at the entrance from Rico Lebrun. It's just very little color. But I'm absolutely sure when we finish, I'm just going to go that <laughs> and see it. It's, it's so attractive, so strong, so alive. You know, all the, in fact, I, I have extended a little bit. What, what happened with this is that we are always afraid of dying. We are very worried and wondering about what's going to happen when all this is over and we are not there anymore. And then all of a sudden we notice that that is what is great about art. That's what makes art so special. Besides the point that there is a market and it is a business too, that's completely besides the point. The question here is that 
you stay alive. You know, I, I can see these men in the back of their drawings, you know. When you are seeing, you are not really seeing only this lady drawn by him. No, you are seeing him through her. And that, that is something absolutely extraordinary because that's exactly what happens. The, the very first time I got involved with, interested in Rico Lebrun is because he was always talking about Luca Signorelli, the great uh, muralist, painter muralist of the Renaissance in Italy who decorated the Cathedral of Orvieto. And then I remember that I have had that in mind. And when we were in Orvieto, my father showed a couple of pieces there. And he says, you see all these couple of figures there with the holes in the land and this man going down until the, the hell. He says, but if you just put your hand around your eye and make a little frame and see, you see Rico Lebrun. So, of course, immediately when we came back, I went to look again and confirm what my father had told me. You know, hey, it's true. So when Rico Lebrun was saying, I love this man, I was influenced, well, that was an easy way of saying it. But the reality is that in his work, you can see the influence much stronger than Picasso's. What was the impetus to start doing the cataloging? I mean, it's logical, but obviously an awful lot of work to document what was here. Where did you start? <laughs> well, one step at a time, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was difficult. To, oh, it was very hard. the 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 most difficult part at the very beginning was probably two two different questions of different uh, matter. One of the two things is that we had to do it as fast as possible. We had to have something soon. Because uh, when he was very sick at the end, there were a lot of fall around. So we had to have a document that could be like the base to say, these are the original works. We had to, to build something. Now, the most second difficult part was the titles. <laughs> he hated the titles. And the reason he hated the titles is he said, we have had extraordinary artists in the Renaissance, but we have never had as many bad artists as during Surrealism. They are all genius. They are all extraordinary. They are all fantastic. And if you take off the titles of their paintings, they disappear. Half of them disappear without the titles, because what is attractive is the title. So I don't want titles. That doesn't mean they were not good artists, but they were not necessarily surrealists as they thought. There are many, many surrealists which are not real surrealists. But we are not going to do a, a battle against surrealism. <laughs> what I say is that uh, surrealism dominated the period where he started being independent. And so he says, the only thing I don't want is titles. So what is seated woman, standing woman, seated woman, standing woman, <laughs> women with shawl, women standing with shawl, and all the pieces are the same name. So to, for not confusing them one with the other, well, now I can laugh. 
<laughs> but at that time, it was pretty hard. It was very, very hard. Yeah, it was very, very difficult. And then, of course, uh, there is another thing about which also, uh, now I know that, but at that time I didn't, is something about which uh, Rico Lebrun also talks, which is the fact that you never consider a work finished. You have started, and then you want another version and another version because... You want, in my father's case, you want the hand here and then the hand in the other side and then the hand again. And then this can happen in two weeks to have ten versions. But then next year and the year again, the next year, he's going to come back to the same idea to try to correct it. And then uh, there is a very beautiful anecdote that has not to do with my father, but which... uh, illustrates this, is when finally many years uh, after his very first show, uh, the the French painter Bonnard, uh, he was invited finally because there were some kind of reconnaissance for his work, and then they said, we're going to do, he's just an old man, we're going to do a show. And then in, in the Museum of Luxembourg in Paris, they did a small show, uh, by Pierre Bonnard. Then they placed the things, and then he came early. And it was, well, it was not particularly cold, but he had a large jacket. And so, of course, they let him in early, because the guards knew he was the painter. And then, all of a sudden, he started going very close to the paintings, and looking, if nobody was looking at him, then he took tubes of paints, and he was <laughs> trying to correct Paintings that were 45 years old. I mean, not, not paintings, you know, that are still fresh from last week. No, no, paintings he did when he was young. And then he was like, and they say, yeah, 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 Monsieur Bonnard, please don't. And he says, I have to correct this. You, you cannot leave it like this. This is terrible. What I was thinking. And all of a sudden, when you hear something like that, you say, well, that has sense. Mm-hmm. That means we're still alive, you know. That means we can change, we can modify. Some disciplines are easier to do that with than others. So, you know, it's nice if you have something that you can make those modifications or just rip it up and go, nope, nobody has to see this one. Yes, many people will not even notice those those details. And uh, if the experts uh, notice, what happens is when you start becoming... I don't like much the word expert, but when you are learning more and more about a certain work of a certain artist, there is a moment when you don't care anymore. You notice what he wanted to correct, and you understand why he wanted to correct, but you don't care. You, th- you say, it's perfect anyway. You know, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. Of course, maybe if I had done it, then it would bother me, of course. But it, it doesn't. And so the idea is, uh, what did he do? How many things he did? Why he was always so busy? Why he was always so desperate for more and more and more? It's, it's very difficult. I have been trying, that's why I have been writing a little more and more about his work, because I would love to discover that enigma, you know? And if I don't discover it, it doesn't matter much. The point is that this enigma 
allows me to define my relation with, with my father. Because my relation as, as persons, as son and father, was not easy. You have been listening to Ears on Art, produced at the studios of KCBX Public Radio, serving the California Central Coast. I am Stephen DeLuke, and co-host Chris A. Hewitt would like to thank today's guests, gallery owner Jack Rutberg and Ariel Zuniga. Join us next week for a continuation of our conversation with these two gentlemen. On a different note, Archie McLaren, a complex, generous man of many passions, died last week. Four of his many passions were wine, food, art, and KCBX. Chrissa and I will always be grateful for his gift of an introduction to Julia Child. The resulting interview in 2002 will forever be a special moment for both of us in our 19 years of Ears on Art programming. Thank you, Archie, for that and so much more that you gave to us. <laughs>